Nikki Wolf is the host and investigative journalist behind Project Brazen's latest investigative podcast series, a story which, much to the consistency of the Project Brazen tagline, is one where, again, we are reminded that the truth is indeed stranger than fiction. This investigative podcast series is called The Sound, and it is an exploration of the Havana Syndrome phenomenon. Some of you may be aware of Project Brazen. For those who aren't, it is the independent media company started by the co-authors of the story of Joe Lowe and the great Malaysian 1MDB scandal, A Billion Dollar Whale. And Project Brazen has been the inspiration for several guests on this very show, including episode 101 with Christopher Turner, the life and lessons from a 25-year CIA veteran, today with Nikki Wolf, and soon to be as well the likes of Mitchell Prothero talking about the Dutch potentially becoming an arco state and cocaine in the Benelux. They publish several newsletters, all of which are 100% in the wheelhouse of the Curious Worldview audience. But in this podcast today, Nikki introduces us to Havana Syndrome. He explains what we can expect from this series and drops a few of the salacious geopolitical and gossipy details about the story to serve as a little bit of a hook to go over there and have a listen yourselves. We then speak about after in the end, there was maybe you could consider this a two-part podcast. We speak about in the end what it takes putting together a production like this. Nikki's life in journalism, nerding out him and I nerd out on podcasting and audiobooks, and then we speak about the broader media landscape. So The Sound released its first episode on Monday. It is absolutely magnificent. The link to the show is the top link in this podcast description. So go ahead and listen to The Sound and leave a review on that podcast as well. Plus, furthermore, write in your review that Ryan sent me. Because if you write those words in your review, I may be able to build a little bit of cred with old Project Brazen. And so rather a review on my own show today, this is the coolest thing you could do for this podcast. Leave a review on the sound and comment that Ryan sent me. All right. With absolutely no further ado, here is Nikki Wolf. Well, let's do it. Are you ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. All right, mate. So what's going on? There is a microwave <laughs> frequency sound that is poisoning diplomats all over the world. Right. Well, that's skipping a few steps. So here's what we know. We know a bunch of diplomats are getting sick. And this started in 2016 in Cuba. And when we say diplomats, those first few were all CIA officers. We know that now. Um, the first thing that got said, and this was when it went public in August of 2017, um, was that some kind of sonic energy um, was involved. That was what Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said. Um, Quickly, a lot of people started poking holes in that theory. So then a whole load of investigations started gearing up. You've got the FBI sending a team in, Cuban governments investigating themselves, State Department um, commissions over the course of a couple of years, I think four investigations, um, and uh, CIA is doing its own. they all start coming to wildly different conclusions. Um, so quickly, um, when a tape of uh, the sound that the diplomats were hearing when they were getting sick got released, um, a team of entomologists identified it as the sound of a cricket. Um, so that complicated matters. Um, there's a huge theory that we, we hear from that um, the whole thing might be psychogenic. The power of suggestion on the human brain is incredibly strong and capable of causing a a wide range of symptoms. Um, So uh, going going into this, we had to start triaging all of these different theories. We spoke to experts in in all of the fields. 
um, and quickly were able to rule out a few. Um, the the idea that uh, like a sonic weapon, which do exist, sonic weapons, um, for example, are used for crowd control. There's something called a, a LRAD, a long range acoustic device, but it's you know it's freaking loud. Like this is not the kind of thing that would be subtle. Um, the uh, what a lot of the diplomats experienced was that the sound was very tightly focused. So you could almost, they, they described being able to step in and out of the beam and it comes and it goes. Um, and that points um, because of something called the Frey effect, which is where a pulsed, um, pulsed radio frequency, which, which is microwave, um, can cause the experience of a sound in the brain without there being a sound outside, without it kind of going uh, in through the ears. Um, so that's a very strong theory, um, and also the psychogenic theory is um, is very strong. So, uh, yeah, not to give too much away about the show, but those are the ones we start to zero in on. Um, and then we had to test it. So um, we had uh, a mentalist, which is an interesting word, because um, in the U.S., that's, you know, uh, we're, we're talking a Darren Brown type. Whereas I know mentalist in the UK has a kind of colloquial uh, meaning as well of just sort of a lunatic. But um, yeah, so he, he demonstrated the power of suggestion on me, which was very, um, very interesting. But we also um, right. had a physicist friend build some test devices, um, one with a phased sound array to demonstrate um, what, what the word, when we say phased, what do we exactly mean? And it means lots of different emitters milliseconds apart so it, it sort of creates a focus point um and also a focused um microwave energy device we are not allowed to call it a weapon um because that's illegal obviously um so yeah so we so we then start to zero in on on these theories and uh, i think at the end of the show we we're able to make a, a quite convincing case talk a little bit about your experience with with the mentalist and this sort of psychogenic <laughs> route that you want to take so I, I came into this, I'm a reporter who spent a lot of time reporting on conspiracy theories. So I'm, I'm aware of how much the brain can do. Uh, so we look into, there was a, a fascinating case in 1972 where a whole bunch of workers in an office in Illinois all became sick and had smelt something weird. And the theory was that this was a, a gas attack of some kind um, until some researchers came in and mapped who the, the victims of the gas attack had been. And these people were vigorously sick, you know, fainting, vomiting, um, all that kind of stuff, like you would in a, with some kind of gas attack, and they were hospitalized. Nine, nine people were hospitalized. Um, but it turned out that once you mapped it against a social group, you could see how the idea of getting sick spread directly along a social network. So the researchers could map it almost perfectly. And that demonstrated how powerful a psychogenic spread can be in a way that I hadn't even, hadn't really been able to visualize before. Um, so that's what I was coming into this with. But it also um, it kind of, the more research we did, the more it became clear that that didn't quite, that didn't cover everything. There were some bits that just didn't quite fit. Um, so, for example, the first, um, certainly the first five cases, maybe the first few more after that, didn't know about each other, had been specifically told not to tell 
anyone else within the embassy community. Um, and so it's, um, as we spoke to one researcher who was part of the, um, who was leading the National Academy of Sciences um, uh, investigation that the State Department commissioned, that they, they looked at this and they thought, well, how can there be social contagion if patient one doesn't know about, pa patient two doesn't know about patient one, patient three doesn't know about patient two? Um, then when it spreads around the world, and um, we've also heard from there are civilian cases, um, that's very hard to triage. We're, we're taking all of the cases very seriously. I think we're, we want to come into this from uh, a standpoint of not dismissing anyone out of hand. Um, but certainly there's, there's a triage that, that you have to do as to what fits a certain pattern and what might not fit a certain pattern. Um, and the pulsed radio frequency um, fray effect theory, um, to to me, and and obviously, the, you know, we've just dropped the first episode. The, the investigation is still very much a, an ongoing investigation. But at the moment, that's that's what seems the most compelling um, to us. Um, but I think it's one of those stories that's that's more complicated than that. There's a lot of different things going on at once. Uh, and so it's unpicking all of this stuff and unpicking it from the politics as well, um, because this was happening in the early days of the Trump administration. Everything is extremely chaotic. Um, so, yeah, there, there's a, a lot of untangling that, that we uh, that we needed to do there. Just to, to linger for one moment on the psychogenic aspect, uh, what has been some particularly concerning insights that you've been told or learned about? Uh, from your experience, either dealing with the mentalist or the power of suggestion, I think that Chicago example was uh, terrific. But I wonder if there are maybe even more absurd examples. <laughs> I mean, there's the when you go back further in history, there's things like the German dancing mania, which is a really famous case where um, people across this German city just started dancing, and that sounds a whole lot of fun, right? But we're talking. Dancing until they died is compulsive, and that was oh another social um, contagion um, that again killed people. I mean, this is this is serious stuff. Uh, and so we got this mentalist. This uh, guy came in and did uh, something with me that um, had me hold a, a key on a string like a pendulum, um, hold it entirely still, and then think about it moving while thinking about keeping my hand still, and it starts to go round in a circle. And so he explains to me that what's happening there is when, even when you're, con you're not consciously moving, when the idea of something moving is implanted in your head, you have a, um, what's called an idiomotor response, which is that entirely outside of your control, the, the thought process causes these tiny movements. And so the key started to move in a circle. And I found that very eerie. Um, and then the <laughs> other way demonstrated suggestion was by um, taking the letters of my name, writing them on cards, laying them out, mixing them up, and having me, and he gave me this whole spiel, having me kind of move the key over it, pick a card. And, you know, this is a lot of card tricks and how kind of stage magic works a lot of the time. Um, and I picked one letter, he turned all the other ones over, and they were blank on the other side. And then the one I picked had an X on it. Um, and now with a magic trick, that just stops there. And you're like, wow. But then he sort of, he was explaining to me um, 
and we go back in the tape to listen to this, and he had implanted the letter C in a lot of what he was saying. So he was like, <laughs> we'll do this, and then we'll see what happens. You'll see what... And it sort of does this over again wow. and says that he was so sure in this demonstration that that meant I would pick the letter C, and indeed I did. So that, that was a really stark, mm. I think, thing showing me how much not entirely on the level your your brain is is being with you at any one time. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I think there's a huge, powerful psychogenic aspect to this story. Um, but, and, and that was what I felt going into it. But I don't think that's, uh, I now don't think that's the whole story. Did, did you learn anything about uh, the differences between people being susceptible to that type of psychogenic um, or, or, or suggestive behavior? What actually would, might make a person more immune to it than another? And I just want to tie that into, you must have an extremely interesting take or at least worldview when it comes to looking at the uh, conspiratorial phenomenons. You've mm-hmm. worked, uh, for example, on the QAnon phenomenon. To me, there's a very obvious link between these two things here. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that a lot of people think, and it would be so simple to, if this was the case, that there was a certain type of person more vulnerable to suggestion, more vulnerable to falling into these um, kind of rabbit holes. But what we found both in this and um, with QAnon was that there is no, no one is safe. Anyone can uh, can fall into this kind of thing. It, it's not, uh, people People love to think, oh, I'm too smart for this. That could never happen to me. In, in all cases with psychogenic transfer, um, and again, I, I don't necessarily think psychogenic transfer explains all of what's going on in Havana syndrome. Um, but with psychogenic transfer and with QAnon, anyone is vulnerable and in the right circumstances the the brain can be led down these pathways so yeah Mm. it it could happen to you that's a that's a really um i think a really nice sympathetic way to look at it because uh, i think with the conspiracy stuff particularly um if you all of a sudden are just absolutely convinced uh, like a really good friend of mine is that the vaccine is 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 part of a, a big global uh, new world order conspiracy that they must be really dumb or they must just be really weird and it turns out mm-hmm. that no there there's something else at play and 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 it's very hard to articulate actually what it is but this uh actually might provide a really nice way to respond to it yeah and and i think the differences also are, are illustrative um Havana syndrome is something that has spread um, naturally. Uh, there's, there's not a, um, like you get with QAnon, there's not an ecosystem of essentially scammers pushing this on people. Um, because it's, um, as the, the psychogenic hypothesis um, would hold, is that um, it's simply an idea that spreads. Now, QAnon is also an idea that spread. But it was being fueled by people who had a vested interest in that idea spreading. And I think that's what makes this, what makes Havana Syndrome not a conspiracy theory story. It's not people trying to be moved into a certain political position for the gain of the people who can exploit that. Um, 
Mm. What this is is the the differences between a um, a conspiracy theory and a psychogenic a psychogenic illness is that no one is pushing a psychogenic illness. It it is its own thing. That's what the psychogenic hypothesis holds, and that's mm. demonstrated in a, in a lot of examples. Now, again, is that exactly what's going on here? That's that's what we. Um, that's what became difficult to to unpick, um, because I think there is certainly in parts of the story that kind of thing is going on, but I no longer think in all parts of the story that's going on. So set the scene for us. You know what are we <laughs> so, actually talking about here? So in the first episode, we hear from Kevin Coates, who um, along with his wife Karen were working in the um, embassy. And uh, in March of 2017, Karen became one of the, um, I think she was patient number 15 or 16, one of the first 24 in that Havana cohort to get it. She was hit in that same way we've heard described, as in, a very focused beam in which she experienced a loud piercing sound, which she um, describes as like a whistling kettle. And that she could step back and that immediately went away. Um, she uh, very quickly develops these symptoms, which are, um, she was essentially bleeding from the eyes. She had, uh, she got checked out. She had detached retinas. Um, she got medevaced out to Miami Um they check her out. They're like, this is the kind of stuff we only see when people have had a traumatic brain injury, like a car crash. But they can't find anything else. So she gets sent back to Havana, then gets hit again in exactly the same way. And over the course of this is starting to develop more underlying symptoms. So um, trouble with memory, dizziness, insomnia, vertigo, nausea, and is finding it harder and harder to work. Then Kevin and Karen get hit um, together he doesn't seem to get hit as hard um, because he it was just the once, but she is deteriorating quickly. She eventually leaves again, goes to the University of Pennsylvania, which had um, taken over from the University of Miami in, in treating a bunch of these patients. Um, and that's how it began for, for those two. And I think it, it was a similar story for a lot of that first 24 cohort. Um, mm. And to this day, she remains severely disabled. I mean, this is not something that's, that's tailed off. In fact, uh, and we go into this a bit in episode two, um, the reason we hear Karen's story from Kevin is that she is still unable to, to sit for an interview, unable to even really be in a room with electronic equipment without intense pain and, and suffering. And also she feels, and we've found this with a lot of the sufferers, um, an enormous sense of shame about not being able to find mm. the words, not being able to tell the story. So um, Kevin was, was telling the story on her behalf. Um, but yeah, the, the impact, it was quickly clear to us that theories about what may be causing this aside, the impact this has had on people is uh, enormous. That's incredibly sad. And um, the symptoms that she was, that were being described of her by her husband 
were also just harrowing, you know, totally truly harrowing, life destroying, um, especially career destroying. Um, But crucially, uh, in part of setting up the story, these were US diplomats, right? And could you give the very brief um, from Obama the history of relations between the US and Cuba? Because there's a giant sort of geopolitical explanation that I think people want to try and make here, right? Yeah, this is the other thing. This is the backdrop against all which all this is playing out. And it goes way back. I mean, we're, the um, US ended diplomatic relations with Cuba and, and dropped an embargo in the 60s under JFK. As you know, this was one of the focal points of the Cold War. You had the Cuban Missile Crisis. You had the Bay of Pigs, which is where the CIA funded and attempted and eventually botched invasion of Cuba. Um, and so relations had been just frozen in this um, absolutely aggressive Cuba being a pariah state for decades and decades. And then finally, after a long period of of very secret negotiations, in 2015, uh, then-President Obama opened up diplomatic relations. Now, that didn't mean lifting the embargo, because the embargo was an act of Congress, and that was never repealed. So what Obama was able to do was use executive branch functions, to lift, um, to effectively reopen um, relations. So the U.S. embassy in Havana was reopened. Um, tourists started absolutely flooding in. I mean, by an order of magnitude, I think there had been tourists in the tens of thousands before to the hundreds of thousands now. And people in Cuba, this was a like a hugely needed injection of um, tourism and revenue and people coming and... Uh, visiting hotels started being built cruise ships were docking um, and then just a year later all of this starts to happen and um, the Trump administration had come through and had filled his administration quite a lot with old school cold warriors people like John Bolton um, and this was the perfect excuse for them to roll back on what Obama had done. So they expelled Cuban diplomats from uh, from the US. Um, they pulled their diplomats out. Um, they re-put Cuba on what's called the state sponsor of terror list, um, which is, just has devastating com- uh, consequences. For example, um, not just American tourists not being able to come, not just Cubans not being able to anymore go to the um, US to visit their families, but also if you're a European tourist, if you go to Cuba, you're no longer able to then get into the United States on a visa waiver program. So it doesn't just affect um, Americans going (laughs) to Cuba. It basically returned Cuba to the state of a pariah. And so when we visited um, Havana, the effects this has had on on people there are has been devastating um it, it feels yeah. like a country that that's now been hollowed out the the economy is in free fall um you know we're paying for things in in bricks of, of uh, banknotes um inflation <laughs> has gone crazy Fucking hell. um and people are just leaving there's a there's a huge exodus of young people because from all of the hope that that was happening in, in 2015 that hope doesn't doesn't exist now and the biden administration has done very little to roll back on what trump did 
so the situation still remains the same you know even what are we two and a half years into a democrat administration again it's horrible eh you've got the absolute center of um wealth creation gravity in the united states just 90 miles off your shores and you've got some of the most fertile land in the world and um you can't trade with them. Was that immediate reversal all in response to the sound or were there other factors at play as well? Uh, it was in direct response, yeah. Um, although there is an argument to be said uh, and we heard from um, Trump administration officials that it was something they, they wanted to do anyway, that this this was a, right. a pretext more than a reason. Um, but yes, it's it's hard to... If there hadn't, if this hadn't happened, um, maybe mm. there wouldn't have been that pretext, and they they wouldn't have been able to do this this immense amount of damage to this um, to this country. And I read in um, some of the descriptions of the show in promotion that it is this phenomenon of diplomats succumbing to health ailments because of hearing some type of sound is not exclusive to Havana. It's actually happened in a lot of other cities around the world. So um, what's going on there? Yeah, so it, it started to spread, um, especially, and this is a point that the, the people who um, talk about the psychogenic um, argument make, is that it went big after it goes public, right? Although okay. there are yeah. some holes in that. But it, it did start spreading the, the, as recently... You know, new cases have been cropping up as recently as last year, um, but it's now on every continent um, except Antarctica. There have been cases. There have been big spikes in Vienna, Hanoi, Guangzhou was a was an early one, um, focusing very much on American diplomats. Although it's worth saying, especially in Havana, very early on, uh, Canadian diplomats were being hit as well. But as it spread, it has remained focused on this diplomatic community. Although, as I say, we have been hearing from a lot of people who. Um, believe themselves to have also been hit, and we we also want to to look into that because, as I said, we're not um, we're doing our own triage. We don't want to dismiss anyone's story um, straight off the bat. So uh, there is a huge global spread, um, uh, and reported cases, confirmed cases. That I think the U.S.'s number is in the nine hundreds of cases that they. Confirmed is a strong word. Every U.S. agency seems to count their own numbers differently, uh, use their own confirmations differently. But um, just in the diplomatic world, we're talking between one and two thousand cases, and then thousands more claimed cases um, across the across the world. And is there a part of the suggestive um, suggestive behavior sort of? line of argument because culturally the u.s maybe rightly so sees themselves as really the most important sort of center of the world geopolitically that u.s diplomats might be more uh, suggestive to thinking that someone's out to get them versus say some australian diplomat in a country well i mean let's be honest or am i clutching at way too many exactly, straws well i mean that's exactly what america is frankly they are the the global geopolitical hegemon um, in, and this is obviously before the war in Ukraine, but in even, uh, before that, the U S Russia relationship did seem to be drifting towards, um, a more cold war feeling, um, era, 
Um, but it has been interesting that it has remained quite focused on U.S. diplomats. I We've heard stories of, of some Australian um, diplomats, some British diplomats, but it hasn't caught fire among um, other diplomatic communities in this way. It has it has remained, um, and, and this speaks on the other side to the the idea that it's a targeted attack, um, with Americans as as being the major target. Okay, so we've got this noise, this sound that people are hearing uh, throughout Havana shortly after a new American political regime comes into office and that has spurred on across the world a lot of people reporting uh, physical ambulance because they've heard a a noise, a sound themselves. Um, What are some of the theories that you uh, pull on throughout the investigation to explain what's happening here? Um, So uh, we follow um, the early investigations that the US government did. Um, and we follow the ones that they look at, the ones that they um, uh, rule out, the ones that they um, can't rule out. So early on, they looked at the idea that it might have been some kind of toxin. Um, this was during a Zika outbreak. So there were mosquito mass spraying going on. Um, that, uh, I think, investigators ruled out um, quite quickly because when the patient's uh, were investigated, they had full tox screens. They were, um, you know, they had full blood work. Uh, no evidence of that sort of thing was found. Um, there was, it was also thought that there might be some kind of um, water um, problem, uh, that some kind of illness had, uh, had come in through food and water. That similarly um, was ruled out. Um, then theories came out around the sound itself um because certain types of sound have been shown to cause um certain types of injury if you're exposed to very low infrasound that can that can do damage so it was investigated as to whether some kind of broken machinery perhaps an air conditioner um might have been behind this um quickly that didn't work as well partly because of the way the onset of symptoms was being described um when the recording was made, well, another person we speak to, Doug Ferguson, made a recording of when he heard the sound and it was identified as the mating call of a type of cricket. Um, that's caused a lot of problems for investigators who, um, and the National, of Science, the National Academy of Sciences investigation, uh, as well as a secret State Department investigation by a group called the Jason Group, came to a frustrated conclusion that the sound on this recording was a cricket, but that it was not possible that a cricket sound could be causing those symptoms. So that was stuck kind of a pin in. Um, We've looked at ultrasound. Um, Ultrasound is sound at very, very high frequencies, and infrasound, which is sound at very, very low frequencies, both of which can be um, used to cause damage, and both of which are used in, in other ways pretty commonly so for example you can get just off amazon a little thing that's an infrasound um you plug it into the wall and it keeps pests away like rodents um the problem is sound uh sonic weapons ironically um are able to be kind of ruled out because 
either infrasound or ultrasound aren't you know audible to the to a human so ironically sonic weapons become unlikely because the, because the victims were hearing something which they wouldn't be able to hear if it was a sonic uh-huh, weapon interesting and then there were different kinds of radiation all of which we um, have to go through in in um, in detail because there's um once you get into the radiation band all, all radiation and i sort of didn't realize this is sort of along the same frequency band light at one end something else at the other end microwave frequencies <laughs> partially in between i we have we have real scientists describing this to us i'm i'm uh obviously entirely out of my depth once we get to to um wave form the physics of uh, quantum of, of, uh, yeah. of radiation okay um but it's all along the same spectrum and so different types of that at different parts of the spectrum can cause different um effects um and so in parts of that spectrum you get something like radar which is itself a pulse radio frequency and and bounces back um but yeah that was um the one of the main theories that that we're um digging into and and have been um have been digging into throughout this and then of course there is the psychogenic hypothesis that we um that we look into and the uh, sort of low-hanging geopolitical explanations what was the reason behind this what do people suspect are the uh, the the culprits so the trump administration immediately blamed cuba um and we think this is part of their wanting a pretext to to roll back on uh on what obama had done um no one we've spoken to in a serious way suggests or even suspects that Cuba might have been involved um, because it entirely wasn't in Cuba's interest to do this. They'd worked very hard on um, getting to this point with President Obama. They were very nervous about what the um, change in administration might mean for them. Um, And then, in terms of geopolitics, when there's shady shit going down, there's obviously one major <laughs> the Russians uh, name that uh, that obviously comes to mind, um, yeah, and that's Russia. And Russia has, it turns out, quite a lot of form in in this kind of thing, going back all the way as far as the sixties and seventies. They had been firing microwave energy at, at U.S. embassies. We spoke to some people at U.S. embassy in <laughs> Moscow who'd said they're in the seventies, and then up as recently as the two thousands who had all experienced um, not necessarily exactly the same thing, although more recently we have heard from people who um, experienced this kind of thing in Moscow as well as multiple other places. But, um, yeah, in the 60s and 70s, they were, there was something called the Moscow signal, which was a radiation. They just bathed the U.S. embassy in, in radiation, and that was designed to... Um, activate passive listening devices so so bugs um but it turned out that that also had health effects um so we've spoken to people who's had quite a lot of the people i served in um at the embassy got very sick and remained sick and so another of the theories might be that what we call havana syndrome and the term havana syndrome is very problematic by the way for exactly this 
reason of the effect it's had on Cuba. Right, yeah. Sort of the same problem as calling um, the coronavirus the China virus type of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, so there is a history of, of microwave energy devices being used by Russia in this way. And then also there's a history of Russia doing all kinds of shady stuff. I mean, the assassinations on British soil of Alexander Lipnenko and um, all of that kind of thing, the Novichok. Uh, it, it fits, you know, it fits the pattern of the kind of thing Russia does. Um, yeah. So, so we're um, looking quite closely into that. Um, and you can see how if at some point Russia discovered that their listening device caused harm, you could totally see Russia not just not particularly caring about that, but figuring maybe this is a good intimidation tactic. Now, now you've investigated all of this. How scary is the underworld of experimental weaponry and sound weaponry and this kind of stuff? It's... It's in that fantastic little region between utterly terrifying and utterly <laughs> hilarious. There, there have been nice. some wild things that have gone on. We, we've um, looked into, there's a guy in the 50s called Vladimir Gavro um, who hypothesized that there would be this thing called the black noise, and that's infrasound, sound way, way below um, human hearing. And... For this being the 50s, there is remarkably little known about Vladimir Gavro. Um, but there is um, evidence that he patented and built this device um, and rumours that several of his researchers were killed in the process of testing it. Now, evidence is quite scarce. We sort of um, talk to a bunch of people and, and look at the evidence either way. Um but the problem with infrasound is that the device that Gavro built was fully 75 feet long, required enormous power to push air through what was essentially this ginormous whistle. Um, oh, and wow. it was a he, there was talk of creating a black noise bomb. This was interestingly something that David Bowie became very obsessed with. There's interviews where he talks about this uh, okay. black noise. Um, so there's lots of fascinating rabbit holes like that about what people were trying yeah. in the Cold War and throwing at the wall and seeing what might stick. Okay, so what about this? Uh, I don't know if this is true, but you, one hears these things said that we can only see about a fraction of the light that actually is happening. You know, our human eyes have only evolved to see X oh, amount yeah. of light that's actually in our environment. And is the same true with sound where... Yeah, you've said ultra and yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the the human ear hears within sort of the middle of the of the band range. Um, ultrasound. The, another use for ultrasound, of course, is is in um, scans for when you have a baby. So you have an ultrasound detector and it bounces off. Um, and you use that to, to build a picture of what's going on within a you know within the womb. Oh, that's what it is. Okay. Um, wow. Now, sound is is simply molecules moving together. The difference between the sound range and the radiation range is um, 
that sound is moving air molecules, physical, um, whereas radiation is its own, it's, it's radiation. So there's a lot of quantum stuff that goes into explaining what, what radiation is. Oh, yeah, is, let's get is, into the quantum. Um, <laughs> we, we have uh, a um, <laughs> physicist act, expert in quantum optics uh, who helps us out with that. And um, I have to say, I uh, haven't retained the uh, a PhD level <laughs> definition of what, what defines radiation. Um, but sound is the same in that in the middle of its band, the human ear can perceive it. At the very, you know, uh, I think I say this in episode one, but but an explosion, a shock wave, is a type of sound. It is a compressed wall of of moving air molecules, mm. um, and sound that we would hear in the audible band is much less than that, and moving faster. So that's that's the frequency. The faster they're moving, and the shorter the distance between these waves the higher the sound we perceive. Um, but yeah, the human ear can only, um, can only hear in, in the very middle of that, um, of that band. Okay, so the idea is, is that the weapon, whether it is a weapon or not, or the phenomenon, is either a type of radiation or a type of sound. Um, how can sound physically impair you to the point of uh, Karen's ailments, for example? Do we know how that's physically possible, for example? So something like a powerful infrasound could cause those kind of symptoms in very specific circumstances. So say um, you're standing next to a very powerful source of infrasound. Um, what it's doing is vibrating your brain... So it turns to jelly, essentially. Um, the problem so, with that okay. is that sound physically radiates. actually moving. Yeah, it's because, literally moving. Because like you said, sound is moving molecules. So it yeah. is actually a physical force that yeah. just enters through the ears. Yeah. And and so it is it is physically possible for that to have these effects. Now, the problem with that is sound is very difficult to focus into a into a tightly focused beam. Um, so that causes problems in terms of um, this particular instance. Um, but if you're standing next to a car that explodes, um, you get hit by a shockwave and it can do, you know, considerably even more damage damage than this. The difficulty mm. with this is the damage is within a very subtle and specific range, whereas with a powerful blast of, of say, infrasound, um, First of all, it would radiate outwards rather than being tightly focused. Mm. And second of all, you would expect to see a wider range of severity of symptoms based on how close or how far to the source um, people right. yeah. uh, were. So that, that was part of how we um, evaluated that particular theory. All right, so we're only one episode in. Um, which is why you're holding back uh, quite a lot of maybe your suggestions or where you want to go. Because I would love to know what you exactly think it was. And you sort of said off air that you kind of come to a pretty firm mm -hmm. conclusion as to, you know, this is actually what I think happens. I'm really looking forward to seeing what that is in the end. What is something salacious and gossipy that you can 
say to us now as uh, a hook, an extra hook to get in and actually uh, watch all the, the episodes as they are released? So I think one of the most important parts of the story is the geopolitical one. Um, and we sit down with John Bolton, who's Trump's national security advisor, and we were very lucky enough to be able to put some of these things directly to him. And mm. um, some of what he was saying in in terms of how much of a pretext and how almost gleeful the Trump administration was to have this fantastic excuse to um, to do what they wanted to do was just how much of a political Fishy. tool this became. Um, was one of the things which is strange in, in a story with so much weird science going on in some ways it's the politics of it that i found the most shocking what have been some of the broader geopolitical implications apart from just the direct um u.s cuba relationship it's had a real dampening effect on um global diplomacy because there is now this sense of real danger for, t for taking overseas posts so we've heard that intelligence agencies are really struggling to to fill some of those posts. Um, the uh, people don't want to take overseas postings with their families because people's children have been hit by this, um, and so it's really impacted the ability, not just of of the American um, agencies and um, and diplomacy to do its work but that dampening effect has spread because everyone's afraid of this now and i believe you said it um the first case was 2016 yes although we've looked back into the history and we now think similar things were happening before that as i said it, it, as far okay, back interesting as this, just because as that the would be the most uncanny coincidence of timings yeah yeah, um, yeah. It, we think it was less of a... Um, certainly, this was the biggest event um, of this in, in sort of recent times and really captured the, both the public imagination and the attention of, of, the, um, of the media and, and the government. But this we've found um, and we think is simply the, the latest chapter in, in a much longer story. All right, so let's talk a little bit about putting it all together um, this is an ongoing investigation. So what do you see for the future of this story? Um, I think uh, there isn't going to be, certainly not now that Russia is involved in a shooting war, any real opportunity to put these questions to the Russian government. Um, and again, since, since there is the Ukraine war ongoing, um, that really complicates any attempts to report in Russia or investigate on Russian soil. So we um, are able to do historical investigations. But if we uh, get to the point where we're reasonably certain Russia is a culprit, sadly, there, there doesn't seem like there's going to be much opportunity to, um, to hold them to account. Um, that might change. And there's always things we can do from abroad but you know it's it's not like uh it's not like the kremlin is is going to answer our emails <laughs> yeah how does one even go about contacting the uh the russian state officials uh, like fsb must be at gmail.com absurdly bureaucratic process yeah 
and and Vlad, they simply Vlad at kgb.com right exactly they but they um uh yeah holding holding a nation to account where which is so based on secrecy and so based on uh intimidation and they want people to be scared um right so uh, you know this has been a tearing success for them um short of catching someone in the act uh, which currently no mm -hmm. security force has been able to do. Um, there, there's been a lot of talk from from government officials that we've spoken to that this would constitute arguably an act of war, which is a very serious allegation to make. Um, and I think that rightly the burden of proof is is extremely high on that, um, and that's ultimately a decision for the U.S. government to make in terms of its response. Um, but it does seem like the U.S. Mm. government is taking this seriously. There's the Havana Act, which has provided, um, you know, m money for medical services for affected personnel. So they're they're not um, they're not ignoring this issue. Um, if uh, if Russia eventually ever admits it or is busted doing it, then I think that's a going to be a ginormous geopolitical crisis, and it's it's scary to be even. In, uh, adjacent to that wow yeah do you yourself feel uh threatened at all there's, uh, not gonna lie there's been some moments where i've heard a strange sound and, and become a little paranoid um <laughs> i i doubt somehow that a uh, podcaster is particularly worth the fsb's time um but it's it's yeah it's less being scared in you know a literal sense and more scared for what this means globally i mean this is um mm. like a whole secret ray gun war going on that we don't know about and if that's even partially the case that's incredible i mean that's that's truly beggar's yeah. belief right yeah my god all right, so putting this all together, when did the Havana Syndrome story come on your radar and then what put you in a position where you could produce it with Project Brazen? So Project Brazen actually approached uh, approached me with the story. Um, and uh, so Bradley Hope, one of the founders, Bradley and Tom, um, we went to the pub and we sat down and we had this conversation. Um, and we said, what? Well, you were looking for stories that... Um, that we could make sound really good. We've made sound design and the music a really core part of the of the production. And I think both almost at the mm. same time Havana syndrome. That's the one that it's it's such a it's such a deep mystery and has this kind of and we, we try to avoid the the easy traps of like Hemingway style, you know, our man in Havana. Um which is not Hemingway, that's Graham Greene. But there is a romance to this kind of spy versus spy story. Um, and obviously because of the sonic element, it really lends itself to, to the kind of beautiful sound design that the, that the team has been able to, um, to put together. So it was sort of all the, um, everything came, came together perfectly all at once in terms of this, this story idea. And uh, anyone who listens to just the first episode will see 
how well put together it is. I, I can tell you as now you've gone into audio as well, um, just how deep of an appreciation I have for whoever edited that podcast. It's incredible. It all works together and, so well. The sound levels are all so perfectly mixed. And let me let me shout out at this point to Max, Becca, Megan, Ian, the whole team at Goat Rodeo who have done a spectacular job and also especially Attacker Quartet um, who've produced this stunning musical soundscape um, for, uh, for us to use. Um, they've just done, they've all done the, fantastic job I'm, I'm really lucky to have got to work with them and so bradley's an old mate of yours then how did you end up at the pub with bradley no he he um he messaged me out of the blue in fact we we've sort of moved in adjacent circles um but yeah so i was coming off the back of having done finding q and he he sent me a um i think it was a, a twitter dm almost out of the blue and said hey you know what are you doing wednesday do you want to come and come to the pub i've got something i want to something I want to run by you. And I think what, what they're doing oh, at Project Brazen is, is really exciting. They're, they're really prioritizing that this kind of production value and, and this kind of storytelling in a, in a way that um, that is just really impressive. Yeah, and I don't know whether this is just my own um, proximity bias or my own preferential bias, but I think narrative journalism is the most entertaining let alone interesting style of storytelling. Um, all of Bradley's uh, books so far and as well the, the projects that he's produced, they all have so much wider and broader potential for big HBO TV shows, um, you know, books, podcasts, like you say. So there also is an incredible business underneath all of Project Brazen as well. Yes, and I won't pretend to, to know exactly how the sausage is made. That's, a, that's above my... Uh above my pay grade um but yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it does feel to me like like they're really building something like a new and exciting way of doing things um fuck yeah and i'd also say that i i've been extremely lucky in, in my career in general to have also worked with um with tortoise um previously on on the finding q show who are also just a terrific outfit there's it's a, it does feel like we're living in a real golden age of of audio storytelling um which is just fantastic and i'm incredibly incredibly glad I, I found my way into this have you been a journalist your whole career yeah i started started out as a on the student paper um then uh worked as a did sort of desk sub shifts at the guardian hung around the office until um until they let me stay and then worked in magazines a little bit <laughs> worked for gq worked for um the new statesman and then the guardian in in the u.s um and yeah, the the life of a sort of daily newspaper is very different from podcasts. We have the incredible luxury of having months right. and months to work on a show, whereas at a newspaper, I'd wake up each day and have to be on a news story and turn it around in in hours. So there is that real ability to um, to go deep into something and and tell something in a in a way that's not just giving the news, but is also present something that's exciting to to listen to and hopefully um hopefully quite fun as well so so having spent a whole career in journalism what are the conversations that you have with fellow journalists about the changing media landscape 
about, say, writing for a newspaper, about the economics of being a journalist at all, about freelance, about the potential of audio, I'd really love to hear behind the scenes how you guys see it all. I mean, this is a huge question, right? You've got... Um we've had 10 years where it feels like every other week another big media organization announces huge layoffs. Um, the newspaper industry especially has really struggled to find a business model that works. You've got predatory venture capital firms buying up small local papers and even, you know, as big as the Baltimore Sun or the uh, Chicago Tribune and then asset stripping them, destroying their ability to do journalism <laughs> Really talented people have lost their jobs. Um, it's it's really tough out there, and the people who lose out obviously are the the journalists who who lose their jobs, but also the the reading public who are just end up being worse informed than that. And I think the exciting thing about um, emerging mediums like podcasting, although it's hardly an emerging medium, right? I mean, when did the first serial series come out? It was what ten ten years ago, maybe now. Um, but as a still young medium that's finding new ways of it's definitely doing this still kind young thing. yeah and and it's fascinating because there's um everyone's really experimenting so um everyone's business model is is different um audible for me did the first show is a, a paywall model um this is uh prx distributed so this is going to be ad supported um for example, we're dropping episodes week by week. The Audible show, the QAnon show, we dropped all the episodes at once. There is, as far as I can tell, no good data about which of those is, is the best approach. It's still such a young <laughs> medium that nobody, nobody really knows this kind right. of thing. So all, it's exciting that we're all experimenting. There is a there is a huge um, market opportunity, but as well shortcoming with podcasting <laughs> that there isn't a central authority not even an authority, a, a central data source that actually uh, you pay to, to, to get access or whatever, but uh, actually has a proper statistics. Who listens to what show, where, who finishes the show, how do ads mm -hmm. actually do? It's like everyone's uh, sort of just, uh, what's the word? There's a survivorship bias to it. Right. Yeah. Well, I was going to say it's it's sort of the same with newspapers, right? Every each newspaper digitally counts their own numbers differently. Um, there's some use the metric of page views. Some measure how far down the page people read. Um, some use the metric of unique monthly browsers. Um, in in the digital world, I think everyone is is struggling to to narrow down audience behaviors and really develop the kind of insights that um that will help get people the right journalism at the right time in a way that um that's financially sustainable so it's all it's not just in podcasting that, that this data is is you know kind of all over the place but you do get a sense um you know we, we find out how many subscribers we have we know when um uh, kind of if Apple Podcasts is, is featuring us, if we get to the most listened um, lists, all that kind of thing. And then you sort of get a, a, a feel for what the, the buzz is. So you can, in some, in some cases, tell just how many people are getting in touch, how many people are, are talking about the show. Um, so yeah, yeah so that's, that's, what we, that's what we love to see. 
absolutely. Um, do you have a a goal in mind or a sort of actually? It, it, I can edit this out. Actually, I, in fact, I will edit that. I was going <laughs> to well, ask I mean, you about. I'd love everyone to hear it. Is the the, show. That's the the goal. Is yeah. No, totally. Yeah. But you can keep that in. Yeah. Everyone, everyone, no, I want everyone I'll, to listen I'll, to it. I'll chop ultimately. it out. I'll chop it out. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. I, I'm giving it a big plug in the in the introduction uh, that that you'll Great. see, and hopefully send them over. And I want them to to leave a little, like a little signature that shows that they came from this podcast. So hopefully, I can, you know, you can see oh, that, that some people actually came from from here. Is that something you could? I didn't even know that was possible. Well, no. I mean, it's not an actual signature. It'll say like from Ryan <laughs> or something like that. You know. <laughs> no, but I mean, like but that kind of thing something like that. would be fantastic if someone could build a software program yeah. where you could know where a referral has come from. That'd be amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's as a, far as I know, no one's, that's a very no one's good, built that. That's a very good idea. That's a very good idea. But it would be the people who'd be able to build those, presumably, are people like Apple, people like Spotify, who are mm -hmm. the who are in control of the infrastructure. Um, it's yeah. it's another question entirely whether the information would then be given to content content producers, right? I think mm. I think the Guardian's mm. able to do that. This is this is a whole sidebar. I don't know. I don't know if any of this is interesting enough to get it in. When I was at the Guardian, they have, Let's uh, have a go. quite sophisticated software that does allow you to see where people have come to an article from. Um, and I think the Washington mm. Post has something similar. I assume places like the New York Times do. But they're big, expensive pieces of software to to produce. So it kind of is only the big dogs who can who can afford to do something like that. Yeah. Um, this is a much broader question, but do you think you can have broad journalism that is profitable? God, I fucking hope so. Um, I don't know how you... L let me add more context. Yeah. Because... No, no, swearing's fine. But um, more context might be, you said predatory VC firms buying them up and stripping them of assets. Everyone is worried about um, clickbait, just getting people onto the site to get some type of revenue to hopefully convert them with a pop-up into something else. The content of the article is, is almost not important at all. You look at an organization called news.com.au. You know, it's one of the greatest hack websites of all time. Every day I enter like three or four of their articles and it's pure cheap dopamine. There is nothing good about it. It's usually about Harry and <laughs> Megan or some ridiculous cricket scandal that I'm so susceptible to clicking on, you know? Yeah. And um, so I would pr I would classify that as not very good journalism. But then you have a guy like, you know, Walt Bogdanovich, who is this amazing, incredible investigative journalist, you know, or a guy like Bradley Hope, um, who are really outliers. And so there's work for them at these big, giant institutions. But then in the middle you know, this is what I mean. Can you have broad journalism that includes the middle? The the outliers, the exceptional people, you know, the this modern media landscape only gets better for them because they get more and more <laughs> audience, more and more opportunities to monetize it. But the broad middle, can it be possible that you can have good journalism there as well? Or is it just nice, incredible journalists, clickbait all the way down? <laughs> what are the two? What's it going to be? I'm hopeful. I, I think that um, obviously the, the clickbait boom is, is a huge problem. And it's, you know, it's not just your daily mails and your news.com.au's that um, have problems with this. You know, 
Um, you know, the New York Times... New York Times food section is a great example of this because everything they do is a troll. You know, they'll they'll do like, oh, this is a British dish, baked beans on on sourdough, and the d- design is to make all British people kind of hate click on it. And you know, the the Guardian or, or the BBC aren't a, aren't above running Harry and Meghan the stuff, and a lot of people are interested in that. It's worth saying. Um, but I think ultimately, people will always want to know what's going on. There, there isn't a case in which people's attention and people's interest in real stories and important stories will go to zero. Um, it's about... Um, and, and I think Bradley and, and Project Brazen are a, a good example of this because they came from this you know, big um, journalistic institution, um, the Wall Street Journal, and have, have made their own startup and are, and are doing, I think, a, a really good job at using um using that startup to appeal to new audiences and i think podcasting is a really good tool for that because in some ways trying to build this sort of delightful listening experience that that's part of making a, a show like this is to bring people in almost as the the lure for delivering you know journalism um and you see this also right. with things like Netflix. I think, for example, Tiger King, um, this kind of huge phenomenon during the um, Netflix show that came out during lockdown. That's that's another that's journalism. That was a, that was a great story that told um, a really interesting narrative that had a lot to speak to about um, you know American life and was huge. You know, mm. big mm. budget, um, but they don't always start out like that. Some of these things start out, you know, someone with a camera, and then you persuade somebody to invest in it. Um, whether the media landscape will look more like small individual creators. So we've seen, for example, Substack and, and newsletters, uh, the rise of that, um, rather than, you know, a, a Murdoch-style big international media conglomerate um, being the, the people who dominate. Ultimately, we don't know. But I, I do think people will always want, ultimately, to know what's going on. It really seems like a um, glass half full versus half empty question. You can really spin it mm-hmm. any way you want, depending on how optimistic you are. Has this yeah, been a conversation that's always happened throughout your career? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I've been part of media organizations that have downsized. I've, I've had my fair share of taking voluntary redundancy. Um, I've seen the kind of boom bust where a publication will invest hugely in something and then run out of money and pull the money in a way that, I mean, everyone talks about the the big example of this being the pivot to video, which is when Facebook started um, promoting video content and all newsrooms invested hugely in video teams. And then Facebook changed its algorithm and, and all of that stopped working again and everyone was left high and dry. Um, there is a massive problem while distribution is controlled by a very small number of unaccountable Silicon Valley social media companies. Um, but you're also seeing, I think, a resurgence of people, you know, I know young people getting subscriptions to print paper newspapers and going back to having a Sunday morning, you know, sipping a coffee and actually reading a newspaper, doing the crossword, things like that. Um, really so there's there's hope they must be outliers i don't know i i think 
Um, you know, certainly newspapers like the the Times or the New York Times or the Guardian sell enough copies and also make enough money from online to to do well. Um, I hope things don't conglomerate too much. So I think it's always a bad thing when when too much of this kind of power is concentrated in in a few hands. Um, but also, there's lots of startups doing lots of interesting things. How do you see the podcasting landscape? Uh, to me, podcasting is the equivalent to radio that um, streaming has been to live television, right? It, it just it makes sense that people want the same listening experience, but on demand whenever they want to listen to something. And I think there's there's a lot of growing there because a lot of people spend a lot of time listening to audio and have a there's a huge appetite for for listening to things um and a lot of old school radio programs bbc for example had uh you know their long-running um desert island discs not a news show but you know a, a big important interview show has made a fantastic transition into into podcasting as has a lot of news shows um and you also get podcasts that are interesting discussions um something like uh the rest is history or behind the bastards and then you get podcasts which are you know one person who knows an incredible amount about a subject telling you about that subject mm. you have something like they're um, the best the constant or hardcore history or and there's yeah. there's just so much out there for people to listen to um and because in some ways at, at one end of the spectrum um it's it's extremely easy to start a podcast. You you know you don't need expensive fancy recording equipment. Just a voice, a story to tell, and um, you know some editing skills that you you can pick up on on YouTube. It's a, a, the barriers to entry are, are very low. Um, so I think it's a lovely medium. I think it's um, it's got a ways to grow. Um, because yeah, I, I think people are, it's it's becoming in, integrated into people's lives. People people have mm. their podcasts that they listen to religiously, almost. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you'd be hard pressed to find someone more bullish on podcasting as a genre than than than, than me. But I think that yeah. last point is is so so true. There is a uh, stickiness to them, like an obsession to them. If you find mm. a, a show that for whatever reason you end up listening to most of its library you will you will listen to whatever that person decides to do oh yeah um even, I, even when it's not I'll, that great i'll listen to there are podcasts where i'll listen to one episode fall in love with it and go back and listen to a thousand hours of, of this you know you, yeah you <laughs> exactly it. and i think the yeah. the other important thing to say about podcasting is that it's an incredibly intimate medium you're you're speaking to people directly into people's ears during their downtime you know whether it's people on a long drive or um on their way to sleep even commuting and yeah, yeah. and there, there's totally. something really really personal about that mm. it's almost like you're you're for a, for a brief time um you know being inside their heads almost or yeah or alternatively, when it's sort of a more chatty podcast, just like they're in a group of friends, like people you really feel like 
you're there in a way that you just sort of don't yeah, get from totally. from reading reading a newspaper article i mean in a sort of similar yeah. way to a um a long form like a big new yorker magazine article or um where you you really develop a relationship with the um with the writer with the with the creator i think podcasting is is a turbocharged version of that yeah similarly with um audiobooks as well i find mm -hmm. you, you you almost this person becomes your friend because you right. took a walk through the park you know listening to yeah. something that they were terribly interested in uh delivered in Aud such a good way Audiobooks is fascinating to me because in some ways, I mean, it obviously, mainly I'm picking, as I only listen to, to audiobooks, I, I have almost stopped reading in paper, which is an awful thing to say, but partly because when, well, I, I intake so much words, you know, when I'm researching and reading, and so I, I have this kind of scan style of reading, but I find if I'm reading a book on paper, I'll have processed a page and be on to processing the next one and found I, I wasn't allowing myself the time to, to kind of enjoy the book right whereas with an audiobook where you're going at a walking pace and there's that element of performance you know a good book combined with being read by a good actor it's just a fabulously mm. rich experience um and sort of its own art form and there's i mean this is all right i'm going to get into the weeds here because i've been working on this theory there are some types of book that that just don't work in that and the two examples that i have come across and they're examples from the complete opposite ends of the of you know the book spectrum one of which is uh, american psycho and the other of which is the handmaid's tale and both of those use i think a literary device which which uses repetition in the case of american psycho it's the you know every time a new character comes up here's what he's wearing is the brand here's the kind of um business cards they have or whatever and in the case of the handmaid's tale it's the chanting and the the kind of almost um soporific religiosity of it that your eyes, when you read on the page, are supposed to glaze over. That's the, the impact it's supposed to have. And suddenly when you're hearing that at a speaking pace, it, it just simply doesn't work um, mm, because there's, there's no way to, to glaze over. So, yeah, that's, that's my, my audiobook theory, is that there's just occasionally the odd um, thing it, it just doesn't work for. Yeah. It's not as bold of a take as I was I was hoping for. I mean, I agree. No, there I are mean... definitely cases where the audiobook isn't that good. Uh, for instance, mm. Andy Serkis read uh, all three Lord of the Rings in promotion for the Amazon's um, Ring of Power show. And I just, it's my f just favorite thing of all time, the Lord of the Rings. So I chopped all three of them back at the end of last year. And the first book in the Lord of the Rings has less songs, uh, less sort of mythical creatures, and it's uh, it's it's the most perfect listening experience ever because Andy Serkis's voice is incredible and he's an actor, so he does all the voices so well. Um, but then in the second book, there is a lot of talking from the Ents, and there's a lot more songs, and mm -hmm. you kind of like 
can can you get a fucking move on at some stage? And I actually found myself, you know, skipping skipping the songs, which is totally blasphemous, mm. you know, to to admit. But it, it was the case that you know, even Andy Circus, someone who you couldn't get a better voice actor for this particular uh, series, even him doing it, putting his heart and soul into it. Uh, it didn't work. It just totally didn't work. Mm-hmm. And because again, those songs on the page, like to your theory, you're not singing. You're just sort of reading through. Yeah. Oh, a couple of these words are on. Cool. Well, this is the point of I'm, the song. Next. I'm, I'm sure you're aware in, in, on exactly this of the BBC full cast radio dramatization of, of Lord of the Rings, right? You've, you've listened to that? No, I'm because not aware. Not, it no. is magic. It is the cast really? is unbelievable. Okay. I'm gonna. It's Ian Holm, as in who played Bilbo in the movies, is Frodo. Um, BBC Lord of the Rings. I had this on on tape, which I would listen to um, in my, on my Sony Walkman back in the day. Um, BBC. It was it came out in 1991, um, and it is. Um, uh, and it was M- and I think NPR broadcast it um, where's the so yeah Ian Holm Bill Nye John LeMessurier um, Michael Horden Robert like all of the great actors of, of the era and it's a full orchestra um, it is, I mean it is truly I, I would Sure, that'd be something else. Immediately, Uh, it is very relevant to your interests, I would say. Yeah, um, you talk about uh, listening to it in your Walkman. A a nice anecdote that I I really appreciate, especially when I'm listening to biographies, listen to a lot of biographies. In Barack Obama's, back in the day, when he was taking these really long drives as as an up-and-coming Illinois politician, uh, Mm -hmm. he would just be chopping through audiobooks. Which is very much ahead of his time, and and, and quite a cool. Yeah. It's kind of like you almost you feel a, a little bit connected to him because uh, hey, I listen to audiobooks too, you know. Yeah, and it, it's long. I used to do lots and lots of long drives. So I was reporting all all across America. So yeah, I was I was burning through audiobooks at a rate rate of you know five or six a week, and I'd just be um, just constantly. And I would I would wake up and I'd immediately hit play on whatever I'm listening to. And if I'm yeah. not, you know, socializing or doing something else, I have audio in my ear all moments of the day until I go to sleep listening to um, whatever I'm listening to and pick it straight up in the morning. I mean, it's, 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 it's an absolute part of my life. I'm, I'm exactly the same. Um, so I imagine you have similar thoughts over how much is this a detriment to me? Like I should take out the headphones for just 10 minutes more than 10 minutes a few hours right um surely you have these thoughts with yourself like am i just doing the easy thing here is this the cheap dopamine because i know i can settle into it uh or is it always a a benefit it's always a benefit there's no you know more more (laughs) reading more more listening is always a good thing i think um although i do wonder um how differently we lay down memories of things that we hear versus memories of things that we read. Um, and that's another of those things we really don't know much about. Yeah. Yeah. Cause some people will, you know, swear on it that, uh, 
visually your uptake is better versus and some people are auditory learners some people are visual learners but yeah you're right we actually there's no definitive conclusive evidence on that is it i guess it's more no. repetition at the end of the day how many times have you gone through something did you think about it while you were going through it mm. it's not simply a case of which sense did it come through It'd be funny yeah. if they did that and then you got like Braille readers involved as well. <laughs> they're probably the ones with the best uptake because yeah. they're really thinking about it. That's very true. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I'd be fascinated to... I, I in- um, and, and also whether someone who has... Uh, who was, say, uh, born blind has a different relationship with listening than... Me, for example, who has gone from reading books on paper to uh, mm. listening to books in audio, I'd be I'd be very interested to speak. That, to I it. mean, that that would be very interesting to know as well. Uh, I have an anecdote kind of in that ballpark. Interviewed a guy called Brian Bashan, who's the CEO of the Lighthouse Foundation, which is the biggest mm-hmm. private charity for blind people in the world. He is himself blind. Um, and the premise for us doing the podcast was to speak about the great British traveler, James Holman, who was in the golden age of exploration, a blind man who just went everywhere around the world, was totally self-reliant, just truly one of the most incredible characters from history. Um, and this fellow, Brian Bashan, was uh, uh, the authority, living authority on James Holman. And one of the details from James Holman's life is that uh, wherever he went, even though he was terribly ugly, uh, not a not a physical specimen, didn't have any money, he women swooned over him because he could listen better than anyone else, right? And he mm. could notice things that the sighted people would totally miss, and that's because mm-hmm. of you know, from from deep intense listening, you can sense obviously a lot more. And Brian, as well, who's a blind man, um, said that. A hundred percent, you know, uh, it's, mm. it's even like a meme in the blind community that sighted people are such shit listeners. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that makes total sense to me. And, and yeah, similarly, absolutely. I, um, I would imagine, um, the deaf community are able to notice things, you know, the relationship with what they're seeing is, is obviously different mm. as well. Um, I had a fascinating experience um, a little while back. There's a great brewery just outside Washington, D.C., um, where, where I think the founder is deaf, and it, it's, um, uh, they hire a lot of deaf staff, and it's become kind of a hub for the deaf community. And we were there. I was there with some friends, and um, it started at some point to pour down, you know, one of these kind of downpours that D.C. occasionally gets, so everyone crowds inside. And the experience of being in a crowded room of people all speaking at once, but, you know, in sign language, the kind of susurration of that and how everyone's able to, like the triage of of sound being different because it's um, visual was, I thought, just a really beautiful moment, a really fascinating experience that I hadn't really kind of considered before. Are you, uh, are you sort of, you said before you're a bit embarrassed to admit it, are you sort of judged by your journalistic colleagues or even friends for not ingesting your information as much through the eyes as you do through the ears? Or is it a prejudice uh, you don't really give a shit about? Not particularly. I mean, journalism, I still, you know, I still read newspapers. I still, I don't, um, interestingly, I don't get my direct news necessarily from podcasts. I mean, there's a lot of really great 
news podcasts around. I mean, something like um, John John Sopel and Emily Maitlis is the news agents, or obviously the Daily from New York Times. That the Economist, I, yeah, the Economist one is fantastic. Guardian's one is fantastic, and there's you know there's lots and lots out there. I use those less. I I tend to when I'm listening be the kind of long form, kind of deep podcasts or or audio books. Um, I and actually this is the shit. This is the thing that I and everyone who does this should be ashamed of. I get most of my immediate daily news from Twitter, which is obviously a toxic hellhole, which I should not be doing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I use non-algorithmic, just straight time timeline, just to get what's happening up to the minute, and that's an addiction. That's not a choice. Totally, no. It, it is. It is the greatest form of cheap dopamine. I find myself in every like free minute uh, swiping mm-hmm. over and and checking it and it is such yeah, a yeah. time suck and the, the I'll cost close of the, the context find myself immediately reopening it it's terrible yeah or deleting it I've, yeah. I've deleted it and downloaded it multiple times in a day like that is terribly mm-hmm. addictive behavior uh, yeah anyway yeah yeah um Nikki, uh, we've sort of hinted at it, but I'd love to know what your your podcast diet is. Could you just name a couple of shows top of mind that you 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 uh, listen to all the time? Um, so I want to give a shout out to my favorite of all time, which is a show called The Constant, um, which is made by this guy Mark Chrysler, and it's just it is the one which causes me immediate joy every time it drops into my feed. Um. I listen to a lot of things like um, uh, The Rest is History, Behind the Bastards, um, uh, Hardcore History, of um, course, Dan Cullen, which is terrific. Um, and then I, I quite like a sort of, uh, there's some great panel shows, um, No Such Thing as a Fish, um, which is kind of a interesting facts podcast where they just sort of talk about cool shit. Um, and a couple of BBC shows. So, um, I'll tell you what, let me just show you what's in my podcast feed right now. So coming uh, up in my feed, I have, so not many um, investigative, uh, sorry, not investigative, uh, interview shows in there. So some of them are, so, um, behind the bastards is an interview show. Um, uh, Oh, holy moly, there's a new hardcore history. Ooh. Um, and then things like uh, Sweet Bobby, which Tortoise did, which is fantastic. Karina and the King, which is another Project Brazen show, which is just a delight to listen to. Um, there's a new Project episode Brazen. of The Constant, which is fantastic. Um, and things like Cautionary Tales, um, which is a BBC show with Tim Harford, um, where each episode they take oh, a... Yeah. Um, you know, like an interesting moment in history and, and sort of, he's a he's an economist, yeah. so he's sort of looking at the behavioral um, things of that. Oh, The Infinite Monkey Cage the, is a BBC discussion kind of talk panel show about science, um, which is uh, really, really good. Um, and then when I've loved a, a sort of mini-series podcast, they, um, so for example, Sweet Bobby, which is another tortoise podcast, which was really good. They'll often introduce... Um, you know, whatever they're working on next, and that'll sort of open up a whole new um, new mini-series. 
you're right. And I don't listen to just straight out one person interviewing another person podcast as much. Behind the Bastards is a very good one. But yeah, I, I like, and this is, oh, Helen Lewis is the new gurus, um, is really good. Revolutions is really good. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I I've heard of so few of these. Um, I, I which I guess is a signal for just. Constant. <laughs> yeah, I get the sense. Okay, I, it's he's really just one of the most talented storytellers around. I think. Cool. I'll definitely check him out. All right. Well, Nikki, how about we wrap it up with a couple um, final questions, including some that I like to ask as many guests as as possible. Yeah. Sure. Um, and I was thinking that because th- there were in the questions that I prepared, you know, asking more specifically about the investigation, your time in Cuba, people you spoke to. And, and I was thinking j- just before we asked them, it might actually make more sense to ask that once the series has concluded. So you can speak yeah, about it more openly and not worry about it. giving yeah. spoilers. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's I think that would actually be a really cool this way is, to do it. It's, it's like another thing that we don't have really good data for right like i don't i don't know whether the best thing to do now is is kind of give away the farm although uh, because it's a live investigation that you know right things we're, we're still waiting to hear from sources we're still uh, avenues that we're, that we're exploring but i i don't know the the exact tone of that will make someone go listen to the podcast whether whether i'm telling them exactly what to expect or being more mysterious like that mm-hmm I just don't know. And, and I, I don't know that anyone really knows. What do your instincts tell you? I've been trying to kind of toe kind of a line so give people a sense of what the story is and, and where we're going with it and what we found. Um, but maybe once we get into the later episodes, maybe not um, not get to the point where I'm fully resting my case yet in, uh, in interviews. So yeah. sort of... before my closing arguments um because we're thinking about this in some ways like like lawyers you know laying a court case you know like um marshalling the evidence and then building a narrative that that we feel is the most uh most probable and then and then presenting it to people as you know listen this is this is what we think happened hmm all right, well, let's, uh, let's wrap this up with a couple of uh, general questions and then, um, yeah, check back in in a couple of weeks when it's, when it's all out. Great. So in uh, your opinion, what are some great investigations that are not being given enough oxygen or potentially not even being investigated at all? Oh, God. Um, pass. That one's going to take me some thought. They, I know Paul Lewis at the Guardian is working on. Well, actually, Heidi Blake's book, which was about the um, Russian assassinations on on British soil, um, I think didn't get nearly as much attention as as it should have done because it's completely wild. Um, you do sometimes you can get something like Ukraine, which sucks up all the news oxygen. Um, but it is also like a hugely important story. So it's, it's not to say that people shouldn't be paying attention to it. Um, 
there's there's always it's always the kind of little things that people like the British and, and US government are doing that that are by nature boring but also by it's the sort of banality of evil stuff so <laughs> the way Britain is um, and it's been in the news but the way Britain treats its uh, migrants and refugees um, and you know the way Australia and the US and, and other countries treat uh, treat their migrants and, and refugees I think there's no such thing as too much attention to be to be paid at stories like that I mean for example you're Australian, right? I'm, I'm guessing that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, I feel like I read a, stories a while back about um, that island that Australia sends migrants to, but I haven't seen... Nairu. A huge amount of... Nairu, yeah. I haven't seen... I don't know whether that's still going on. I haven't seen that followed up a huge amount. Um, Rikers Island in, in New York. People keep dying in Rikers Island, held in pre-trial detention. Um and again, that that gets in the news, but I think should be, you know, something we're constantly talking about. In some ways, in America, it's exhausting because it, you know you take a topic like police violence, and by the time you've finished telling one story, it's happened, you know, ten more times. It's impossible to keep up. Um, and these things never get followed up. It's rape statistics in and the number of uh unfollowed up rape cases untested rape kits that that lie around the the extraordinarily low prosecution rate um for sexual assault um is a, a ginormous story that i think um people should be talking about more um and there's lots of things like that i mean the the way that our states operate and then some of them the problem is that as I said, the type of story is just fundamentally so boring and inaccessible because they involve government budgets and allocations and, um, you know, following money trails that may not lead anywhere and are really difficult stories to tell, um, but remain really important. We, we have, there's kind of, especially with podcasting where you're making a narrative, it would be really hard to make a show like this about a story like the slow drip drip of cut funding cuts to the British NHS, right? How do you, how do you make that uh, a long form narrative podcast? How do you, how do you get audiences interested in something that's, that's not like one massive romantic crime, but kind of death by a thousand cuts to a public service. They're, they're difficult stories to, to cover and, and even more difficult stories to get an audience interested in. But they're they're the the really important ones, right? Do you have a theory for why so few investigative journalists or journalism comes out of Australia? I mean, I think you guys do all right for yourself, right? The um, the barely think of it. I mean, it, it's uh, to my shame not Australia, not because I've been. An America specialist, basically my my whole career. Um, I uh, used to, when I was in San Francisco, we would hand off a lot to um, the Guardian Australia office. Um, so I I know a few of the people who work there. I know they've got some fantastic journalists and do good work. I, I just say because there is a um, 
there is just as a you know signal of the culture that I see there is a YouTuber who is a comedian um, who occasionally talks about social issues um, mm-hmm. and made a couple of really nice videos uh, talking about say the dredging of the Murray River to um, to um, irrigate some cotton fields in Australia one of the most drought ridden countries in the entire planet. Um, for really no good explanation except for corrupt local interests and you know he's the 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 he's sung a hero um mm-hmm. it's like well, why has no one ever spoken about this and it's like you know what why why do you not hear these great stories there are there are australia is a deeply interesting country with a deeply unique uh history especially when you think about what the Australian culture is in relation to who the indigenous people were when they came mm-hmm. in relation to the British government, all the crazy uh, commercial shit that goes on, our ties to China, the, like there is so much there. Um, and I just, um, I don't know anyone who writes about it necessarily mm-hmm. that maybe has a big international profile. Um, I, I would say you know, and, and a I lot think, of my Australian news comes from... Uh, Van Van Badham, who's a Guardian columnist, she um, her Twitter feed I think shares a lot of uh, how I hear about what what um, goes on in Australia. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a fascinating place because in some ways it's sort of like the America of the Southern Hemisphere, right? There, there's parallels there, and that it's a, a white fundamentally British occupying population who, uh, you know, brutally oppressed an indigenous um, population. Um, there's the same exposure to the Anglophone internet, which I think leads to some of the same political um, phenomena that we see everywhere that, that Facebook has. So that is, you know, QAnon was um, present in Australia. You get that kind of thing. Um <laughs> But the one thing is, I have no idea how your government works. It feels like there's a new Australian prime minister every couple of weeks. What the hell's going on over there? Right, yeah, question. we right, had... Who's, who, who's the prime minister right now? Is it ScoMo still? No, it's a fellow called Anthony Albanese. Um, oh, it's Albanese. An election right. that happened last year. Yeah, ScoMo's on the out, but there was a five-year period there I can't remember the exact five years, but there was a five-year period where we had five prime ministers, right? And I mean, Britain's just had that as well. But I feel like we've, we're, we're, you know, we can't talk at all about political chaos. Yeah, that's true. You went through three last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of them barely counts. She was there for about thirty minutes. Um, oh, poor. What, I felt what do you so reckon is going to happen in New Zealand? That happened. Um. I've no idea. I've no idea. I'm not in touch at all with um, New Zealand politics. Barely in touch with Australian politics. Um, didn't she just step down because of she was maybe overwhelmed by the job? Um, I, I, I think I, honestly, I don't even know. I shouldn't say anything. It, it was it was quite um, it was quite impressive because she she said you know I've served my term. I'm not prime minister to because just I want to be in the way that, you know, like a Boris Johnson is. She, she said, I've, I've served my country I have, um, and it's time for me to step down and, and um, let somebody else have it. I don't, I don't think it was that she was overwhelmed. I think she um, 
came to a very mature decision that her um, that it was time for for a change. And I think we should see you, you know we should want more of that in um, in democracies rather than people like the British government who are wildly unpopular, clinging to power for the sake of it. Not, I mean, yeah, I mean not that that was true of Jacinda Ardern, because for all intents and purposes, she was hugely no, but, popular. But isn't that just a, a problem of selection bias of people that want to be politicians? Yeah, I mean, exactly. How many of them yeah, which is, maybe... Which is, I think, what makes Ardern I mean, so unusual. Yes, yes, that's true. That's true. Uh, but no, I don't know what's going on there. I, I think New Zealand as well is a deeply, deeply interesting country. Less so than Australia, yeah. just because they don't have the same... Uh, sort of geopolitical soft power and uh, mm-hmm. commercial interests. You know, we genuinely provided the coal that uh, grew China. Um, yeah. I think per capita, Australia is the highest uh, carbon emissions per person country in the world. Um, there is there, there is there's something to the standard of living there. Like you, mm-hmm. you'd be hard pressed to convince me that Sydney isn't literally the greatest city in the world. Um, it's, and, 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 and th- there are so many interesting things about the country anyway. And I just, um, yeah. I, I just wonder as someone who lives in Sweden, like you, you, when you leave your own country, maybe you experience this when you lived in America, you know, you start to form a whole new opinion of where you grew up and the culture that mm-hmm. shaped you and where you sit in relation to it now. And you become more interested in maybe what's happening there from a perspective that you never would have even uh, brushed mm-hmm. up against had you just remained in the country the entire time. Yeah. I actually do follow on Instagram and very much enjoy, I don't know if you've come across this, there's sort of an Australian version of The Onion called The Batuta Advocate. And oh, absolutely, yeah. And it's a, it's a satirical... Overall. I, I love it because it's, it's always very funny but also sometimes completely incomprehensible. I mean, the the working on <laughs> five separate running joke premises, none of which I get, but I, I really enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. No, th- those guys are so funny. Um, yeah, they and they, so they, they're, they're also it's, big it's and they were, yeah, they were early in the podcasting uh, game too. Um, and oh, I didn't so, know they had a podcast. Yeah, oh, I, I think they... I think they've got a couple um, and they also are local, huge local supporters of a bunch of other podcasts in Sydney. So, you know, they they played a huge role in bringing what is my favorite podcast called Hello Sport um, mm. from this obscure, you know, duo between two fellas who started off as a sports channel. It just became like lifestyle. Um, and it mm-hmm. was, you know, they did it for three years and now since Batuta lifted them up quite a bit, they've just completely blown up. They're one of the biggest podcasts in Australia. And it's, um, it's so, for, for me, to, it's impossible for me, to, for me to not project onto it quite a lot because I've been through mm-hmm. there for their entire journey. But then as well, I'm here, an Australian, trying to make a podcast uh, to see the potential of where it can go um, with enough consistency, with enough time spent. And... Um, Anyway, yeah, Batuta are incredible, incredible, incredibly funny couple of blokes, but as well savvy um, because, you know, they don't, they don't miss out on monetizing all that um, audience and exposure that they're getting um, and influence as well. You know, they, they 100% play a role in Australian politics now, um, whether they like it or not. Yeah. In the same way that The Onion is, is very 
powerful. You know, people they they use comedy to make real important political points. Yeah. Do they still do they still go? I I, I just know oh, they're yeah. like great early two thousands videos on YouTube. I don't think I see anything from them these days. But maybe it's because no, they still they're still very taking much... that over my sarcasm. Yeah. No, they're they're doing they're still doing great work. Well, that was an interesting tangent from great investigative stories not being told. Let's move on to the next one. Who are your journalistic heroes, people you admire? Uh, as in current or historical? Wherever you want to take it. Um, I mean, obviously, the sort of the the big. Um, you know, one of one of my lodestone books, I think, is um, the journalist and the murderer. Uh, the the journalist and the murderer by Janet Malcolm. Um, so that that kind of era of you know, big investigative the the time when you could get the money to write to you know, spend two years on a book, um, and then in the modern era, I think. Um, Paul Lewis and the Guardian's investigative team are doing really well. Um, uh, see, my my memory is just not the kind that can that produces names off of, off the top of my head. This is sort of my my endless problem. Is I have I could go through and send you a list, but I, I just struggle to <laughs> to push names out. Um, there's a couple of people doing really good work on um, on Capitol Hill. Um. Yeah, I'm terrible with names. I'm. <laughs> no problem. I, no problem. I tend to, the, um, I, the New York Times always does good work. The Guardian always does good work. Um, Washington Post always does good work. Um, there's lots of good journalism out there. Um, you know, fundamentally. Speaking of Capitol Hill, how what years were you living in Washington? Oh, all right. So I started the Guardian in New York in 2014. I think I spent. Um, well, I was I was doing cover for the uh, for our Senate side reporter. So I think I was maybe three months in 2015, and then the end of 2015, I moved to um, San Francisco to cover Silicon Valley out there. Um, but sort of all so, reporting in America is political reporting. But I tried to, especially when I first moved there earlier than that in 2012, where I was covering um, Obama's uh, re-election, I went, rather than covering it from Washington, I went to um, Defiance County, Ohio, sort of embedded in Ohio, because it was one of those counties that's picked the winner for, um, you know, a, a century or something, a, a bellwether. Um and I, I like doing the kind of reporting where you get out and you sort of meet real people. I think that's in in Westminster and in Washington, you're just sort of there's lots of great investigations to be done, but you're also kind of at the mercy of the of the bureaucracy as well, who will either allow you access or not allow you access. Um, and I think political journalism often has that that problem because it's a really tough. Um, tough circle to square right you don't want politicians to stop you know telling you things but that to some extent means that in some cases you don't want to do anything that could upset them and that that's uh 
that's a real dilemma, I think, that, that's sort of endemic to, to political reporting. And, and also people, you know, it often gets reported on like a, like a sport, like a game, right? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? And I think Trump certainly was able to hack that um, and get the attention by being so crazy and so um, out there that the journalists had to cover that. And that meant he dominated the coverage. So there, there is, there's a sort of problem there, I think. I was just curious to see whether you had any um, crossover time with Christopher Hitchens, a fellow Englishman who moved to America. No, he to... he had um, already passed away. Sadly, by the to... time I yeah. by the time I got there, I would have loved to have met him. Was this person um, at all in the back of your mind as a as an inspirational figure for when you make your own move over? As as a writer, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the the way he turns kind of words is is fantastic. Um, is the ultimate what if Hitchens could have just done twenty more years and really, really soaked in the podcast revolution because. Yeah. The best thing I mean, of him was his voice. Yeah. Oh my! It would Hitches have just on been Trump would have the been best magic. And then, actually, if we're talking heroes, um, my ultimate hero, the kind of lodestar of anything I, I'm doing when I'm writing, and um, uh, may he rest in peace. Obviously, sort of very sadly passed away. Uh, but it's Anthony Bourdain. I, I think Anthony Bourdain is a masterclass in all things, and and the sort of He's he's the person who in my head is like, what would Anthony Bourdain do? Is the that's um, fascinating the sort of mantra. So he was on your mind uh, while you were, you know, strolling the streets of Havana. Like, how would Bourdain Absolutely. view this moment? Yeah, completely. I mean, I I almost I worship him. I mean, he's my absolute hero. I uh, watched uh, only a few weeks ago for the first time. Uh, what was it called Roadrunner? Uh, I'd never watched mm-hmm. any of his cooking shows. Uh, I did read Kitchen Confidential. I uh, didn't finish mm-hmm. it, uh, but yeah, watched Roadrunner. I was like, yeah, the the man was uh, captivating, if nothing else, you know. And and what is it that makes you so captivating? Why was he so captivating to you? Um, I mean, any of his shows are just written with such empathy and elegance and intelligence and a sense of how food is a window for him into understanding a sense of place which is why i think he truly was a journalist um there are episodes i episodes of of parts i've known for example where he goes to vietnam and i think it's the second time sort of 20 years after he first went there and he sits down with with president obama and they have this conversation about um Vietnam and the effects of the war and he visits the the kind of sites of the atrocities of the Vietnam War um and just the the way he can capture the story of a place I think is is peerless there's no one never been anyone like him and and how did he do it what was it about him that made him capture it so well and 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 I suppose so vividly say exactly how you want to feel about something it's an impossible question right how do you quantify genius i mean he just was the i i i wish i understood how he did it because i i could i could 
you know, try and emulate more. But I mean, part, sometimes it just feels like magic. Well, um, yeah, if, if you admire him so much, I, I suppose one day you'll have to eventually watch Roadrunner, though I do admit. I, emotionally, I don't know that I can, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure if actually it paints the picture of this great, admirable man the way that um, I suppose, you know, one would like to have him remembered as. Um, yeah, I, I would prefer to keep watching his work rather than because, you know, thinking thinking about uh, because, you know, it's it's one of those where depression and, and this kind of thing is such a horrible and awful sort of disease that can, you know, affect anyone. And I'd, I'd rather that not be how I think about Anthony Cordain for for you know how he died I, you know much prefer to keep watching and and will always keep watching his work and um have him in mind when i'm scripting and and planning stories and and scripts and things but yeah i'm i'm not sure i'm not sure the movie about him and how he how it led to his death i'm not i'm not sure i want to watch that to be honest mm. similar to to hitchens um with Bourdain that that you almost feel like it's a, it's a really non-intellectual conversational style of being told something. Um, How do you employ in your own writing when you're putting together a story, that sense of intimacy, that, that turn of phrase, which grammatically should not work yet Mm -hmm. delivers the message you want. I, I think, and especially with audio, um, the thing that I'm always bearing in mind is how would I tell this story if I was telling it to a friend? You know, what what would I... And, and you sort of catch yourself when you're writing, especially coming from print writing, I keep catching myself in these formalities that when I come to say them out loud, I just it's just not how anyone talks. Um <laughs> So I, I try and, re- when it's useful, I think, to when I'm um, writing, I find to say it out loud and say, yeah, that's a, that's a weird turn of phrase. No one would ever put it that way. And when I was an editor, for example, I would edit out lots of things where people would be like, that is, or, um, you know, it is. Where people speaking out loud say that's an it's, right? Like, that's what's going mm. on. No one actually says that is what's going on. Unless it's a, you know, specifically for emphasis, right? Like conversational speaking is different mm. from from the kind of formal uh, stuff that you get in in a lot of writing, and so I, that's that's what I keep trying to bear in mind. And sometimes that means that when I'm in studio recording, we leave room for kind of ad libbing it because when it's only when you come to sort of say it that you look at the script and you're like, actually, no, I'm gonna, you know, say this like mm. I like I would say it. And did that happen much in this experience? A lot of ad lib? Oh, yeah. And and always. And we're not talking ad lib like whole sections. It just mean somewhere where I've said, um, I don't know, like this is what happened. Um, when I come to say it, the, the way it feels right to say it is being like, listen, this is what happened. You know, it's, it's, it's this and it's this and it's this and not 
you know, not the way on the page it makes sense because it's a spoken medium, right? Like you've got you've got to have that mm-hmm. sense that you're listening to yourself back, otherwise, it, it comes out as robotic. That's what made Dan Carlin's series so sticky. Um, and he admitted to this in, I think, the Tim Ferriss interview. But he actually does not even go in with a script. It's an outline and mm. bang, record, I'm going to talk to you now. And obviously, that's an incredible skill. For in five right. hours. I mean, however, madness. Yeah. Does the man even go to the toilet? But, but, uh, but like, if it had been, even if you, you, you know, the, the greatest writers, whatever if they had written it down and he'd read it verbatim, it's impossible to say because we can't A-B test it. But there is a sense that the the ad lib, the audience instinctually respects and rewards that level of authenticity. Yeah. Um, and and that, that maybe is a bit of a, as a, punk is such a cliche, but that is a as a sort of rebel undertone to what podcasting maybe might be. Yeah, because like you said, absolutely, it's and no it, barrier and to I entry. Think, and I think that comes from his long years of practice in talk radio, right? He's that's that was his background, so he's it, it's in his blood almost. I think. Hmm. Nikki. Two questions I like to ask every guest that comes on the show. The first is, what is a country that you're particularly bullish on? You know, having come through the pandemic and the Trump years, I think America's, I can't believe I'm saying this, but in some ways not looking in as bad a shape as it as it has been. The The Trump wing of the Republican Party seems to be at war with the other wings there's a sort of a falling out of love with with MAGA-ism in a way that seems to be hilariously completely you know eating the republican party from from the inside joe biden just had the best midterms election performance from a democrat in 90 years um he's had a outstanding legislative record um will i mean i i have been wrong on this exact thing dozens of times um, but I think there's there's hope for the future of America in a way that I wouldn't have said, um, you know, even as recently as, as 2020. And certainly, you know, January 6th, 2021, right? Um, Britain less so. But there'll be an election <laughs> eventually. And it, but Britain's government is, you know, a mess. Um what other countries do I think? Um, I I don't know about bullish about because I actually don't know a huge amount about its politics, but I've recently fallen completely in love with Mexico. Mexico City is, I think, truly one of the world's greatest cities. I, I adore it. Um, that is my I, answer. I, I, um, really? Mexico. Nice. Yeah. I, so I I don't actually know much about you know for example the economy or or things like that. So I, I'd love to know more about. And the history of Mexico as well, because it's, I mean, obviously fascinating. I'm, I'm quite poorly traveled in South and Central America. Um, I'd love to spend more time traveling around. Um, but I've, yeah, I've been to Mexico City, and as soon as I landed, I thought, oh, yeah, this, mm. this, is, a, this is a place where I'm, I'm going to love. What are the places you're bullish on? What, what, what's, 
Well, yeah. What me and my missus are talking about moving to Mexico City. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean, I would, I yeah. would in a in a hot so second, honestly. I'm, uh, yeah, the I'm, food is I'm completely unbelievable. It's an incredibly green city. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I always had a prejudice that it had shocking uh, air uh, air quality. I lived there for five months, and I just thought, okay, sunk cost. The air quality is shit here. So be it. I'll live with it. Um, and when I went back last time, I was telling this to, to my missus and, and she fact-checked me on it. And it's not even in the top 50 or something because they've got so much plants. It's this huge um, carbon mm. sink. Uh, that's why mm-hmm. it's so green everywhere throughout Mexico City. Um, anyway, wow. but the, the bullish case uh, economically for Mexico is that they're a populace of about 150 million people. Uh, they're an incredibly well-educated workforce, as much as two times more educated than the average Chinese person. And they have to their north the hungriest, most aggressive consuming society in the entire planet. So the True. only reason that they are not already top five GDPs in the world is because that same that same culture as Europeans, as Australians, as Asians have a insatiable lust and demand for cocaine. And that is the source of the majority of the political mm. corruption and then as well the social corruption and the social degradation in um, much of the most populous states, which are the ones that just are up near the border there, which should mm. be the biggest manufacturing states. Um, and so you take away the, the cocaine variable, they're already top five GDPs in the world. You leave in the cocaine mm. variable, I think they're the 15th at the moment, um, but they have... A culture that rewards hard work, you know, you, you derive a lot of your value as a, as a man, as a woman, as a family from having a, a good job that's respectable, that you, that you, that you get up early and struggle for. Um, and that which you've seen the same thing in China, that is an incredibly, you know, like that's a variable you can't discount in how prosperous is a, is a nation or a country going to be. I think mm. people often discount it in America, but the idea of the American dream or the idea of in America that you, a lot of your value and status comes from how successful, how hard you work is a huge, huge uh, discounted variable for what actually makes for an incredibly a good economy and a good country. Anyway, so that's kind of a very short reason why Mexico, uh, you should be bullish on them economically. Mm, um, that's very culturally, I think they're just incredible. They're so nice. There's there's so much mm-hmm. hospita- hospitality. Um, truly, the one thing that fucks them and it fucks them really hard is the insatiable lust for cocaine and the fact mm-hmm. that uh, Mexico are the 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 medium of delivery, um, mm-hmm. and that the cartels seemingly have. Um, maybe moved away from what may have been more community moralistic sentiments in the beginning where you wouldn't, you know, murder a whole man's family because he switched sides. You would just murder the man mm-hmm. um, where you wouldn't ship fentanyl, where you wouldn't ship manufactured drugs that you know are going to kill people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they started off uh, just shipping in weed big time. They just shipped in tons and tons of weed um, and then, obviously, things escalated from there. But anyway, mm. that's I think the nutshell. <laughs> yeah, I think as as cannabis legalization spreads in the U.S. as well and and becomes normalized, I think that's going to be have both um, a huge kind of moral and societal 
benefit. You know, you're not going to have, you know, young black guys uh, arrested for cannabis possession. I think that, you know, literally everybody, um, you know, does and has huge medical benefits as well, you know, for dealing with PTSD, for dealing with insomnia and things like that. Um, and also huge economic benefits. I mean, the state of California makes a ginormous amount of tax revenue from from um, legalized weed, as does Colorado, as does Washington, and now New York has just just joined them. And it's it's truly baffling to me that that Britain, for example, hasn't um, hasn't yet done the same. It seems like it's just such an obvious single policy that could that could make so much difference. Yeah, the weed question is interesting. I, I, I as well don't know why it hasn't spread throughout Europe as quickly as they might have thought. Maybe there's this mm. idea that Europeans then smoke weed. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there was that a really doesn't... fascinating um, case in the UK under Theresa May's government where um, she, as prime minister, personally intervened in the case of a woman who'd been arrested importing medicinal marijuana for her son who was epileptic and I'm epileptic. So I, I, you know, followed this case very closely and I really thought that was going to be the moment because all of the newspapers, you know, it doesn't, it's not often that the sun and the daily mail and the guardian and, you know, all of the spectrum of British newspapers all agree that something is morally the right thing to do. And I really thought that was going to be the moment that would lead to, to change, but it, it, it doesn't seem to have been so far. The whole issue of uh, drugs and legalization and cocaine specifically, if you check in the annals of the podcast, uh, actually is a really strong theme. I am I'm, I'm the rare Australian you'll come across who isn't deeply obsessed with cocaine. Um, and so I think it is actually a like a uh, the the most singular cancerous supply chain and product that um infects the entire global <laughs> that infects every that infects the entire globe and specifically has particularly harmful effects in Mexico a country which mm. i love but again these are this is a problem that um legalization or semi legalization and, and regulation would go a long way to solve and i you know it, it's not it's not my choice of poison i have a wide range of others though but um, but the, the, the idea that any of this stuff is the idea that alcohol is legal and the, the rest of this stuff isn't I, I can't really and and scientifically so I, I studied this a little bit I did this weird joint degree in journalism and neuroscience and one of the modules I did in neuroscience was <laughs> um, kind of drug neuroscience alcohol is miles ahead in terms of physical damage even of things like crystal meth and heroin um, and societal mm. damage as well. You know, people, um, you know, like the, the violence that alcohol causes, the societal problems that alcohol causes, and which, again, I'm, I don't think means it should be illegal. I just think it means that, that it undermines the argument for everything else being illegal and regulated. Because all of this stuff you're talking about with, with the way it fuels organized crime is exactly what happened in the U.S. In, mm. during Prohibition. We just still have prohibition yeah, exactly. for those substances, and it's just as disastrous. Yeah, the do, do you think we could ever have, maybe not in our own generation, but maybe in one or two generations after us, you could come to a world where drinking is as rare 
uh, and maybe even socially stigmatized as something like, um, you know, a, an, an LSD or a party drug, um, for instance. Do, do you think that's possible? Like, if, if is, is a trend... Do you see a bit of a trend? I don't know. In Stockholm, I definitely see that trend, but it's just one signal yeah. in the whole globe. I mean, you're from famously I mean, the, one of the greatest boozing nations of all time. So could it happen in London? I don't know. The numbers do seem to imply that, that Gen Z drink less than than previous generations. Um, I don't know if it'll lead to it being you know, stigmatized. I, I hope it, it leads to certainly there being more care available for addiction services. And that means properly funding things like the NHS. Um, but I, I hope we're going towards a world where everything is is not stigmatized, but the care is there for, for people who... Because it's not like, you know, drugs being illegal stops addiction. Right? It, just, mm, it just doesn't. Evidently not, yeah. 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 So I, I hope we're going towards a, a situation where, um, you know... And Portugal, Portugal's already trying this as an experiment. By all accounts, it's it's going fantastically. You know, people get the care that they need no. um, and are not criminalized for, you know, something that is essentially done properly, um, not necessarily harming other people, especially if the, the supply chains are no longer attached to to all of these kind of huge and damaging criminal enterprises. I think as, a, as, a, mm. as another example, I think... Um, Australia's position on sex work, for example, is very forward-looking, and I think that too is something that that should be, should not be criminalised and should not be driven underground, right? Like, and that's that's also been quite successful, hasn't it? Yeah, I I I, I guess so. Um, you didn't hear about it much. It is that you you it's illegal to buy, but not illegal to sell, right? Is that the position? No, I think currently in Australia there are legal brothels. Okay. Okay. And, and it sure. hasn't led but to that's an interesting collapse, di- you know? dynamic. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, um, I'm just looking at I the think time we've solved, here. Solved the problems of civilization I'm, there. Absolutely. I mean, let's just forward this on to the heads of states around the world. Mm. Um, final question, Nikki. Yeah. That I like to ask as many guests as possible. If you could witness a conversation between any two people of history, dead or alive, no language barrier, so you're listening to a podcast, who is it between? Ooh. As in two people who were having a conversation at the time or two anywhere? No, you, two. You, you choose two people they don't have to have anything to do with each other. It could be, it could be, you know, I don't know, fucking Cleopatra and Bourdain, right? Yeah, really, that's a solid shout. I mean, I'd love to like mix things up because you could get some really funny ones, right? Like I'd love to watch Joe Rogan interview Napoleon, you know, like that sort of yeah. thing. <laughs> um, yeah, or... Uh, um. Well, then there's all the, you know, having someone like, I don't know, Oswald Mosley, like a Nazi supporter, being, like, interviewed post post the war when you could be like, yeah, you lost, dickhead, like, see the, the look on their faces type of thing. God, there's infinite options with that. Actually, similarly, I was having this conversation um with some friends about 
uh, if you could go back in time for one day to watch one historical event. Um, oh, wow. I was thinking, I, I've always wanted, uh, I, my answer to that was I want to go back and watch the Battle of Cable Street. I don't know if you're familiar with the Battle of Cable Street. No. Uh, it was a, a Nazi rally. The British Union of Fascists, the British Fascist Party, was before the Second World War, did a big march through um, London's Jewish East End and were met by a huge counter-protest of um, an alliance of the, the kind of Jews and communists and trades unionists who just kicked the shit out of these guys. And that was the end of fascism in, in the United Kingdom. I'd love to see that. <laughs> and then also, I think another good answer to that is I'd love to go back and see like a Roman chariot race. I think that would be great fun. How about you? What's your... Well, the conversation is uh, someone with Hitchens. You know, Bourdain Hitchens would actually be a very good one. Mm. Um, but Hitchens, Hitchens, um, Hitchens interviewing Hitchens Hitler. Vidal. You oh, know. Hitchens Vidal! Well, I actually I just, just saw Best of Enemies yeah. in um, in London. Uh, oh, there you go. Yeah. How good is um, it? Oh, it's a really, really good play. It's it's terrific. Yeah. And just oh, it's a play. Uh, I only yeah, saw so the, they, they made a the play documentary. Of the yeah, documentary. Okay. The documentary is amazing as well. Nice. Yeah. Um, no. Um, Hitchens. His uh, actual his intellectual hero was Gore Vidal. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I can. You know, he he that. really modeled friends, think, himself right? on him. Yeah, uh, they were until um, Hitchens uh, went pro invasion on. Uh, oh on, on yes, everyone. of course. Yeah. Yeah. He just dropped a bomb on his entire social life and political life, mm-hmm. um, and did. But that was, you know, that was that was a part of his uh, his entire persona. It was to be the contrarian, mm. even if it meant. But I mean, I'm projecting onto it. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I mean, I would love to watch. Yeah, I would say Hitchens interview Donald Trump. The the thing is, is as would I, but I, I'm worried about. Would it be a great interview? There's potential for it to be a very interesting discussion, but does does Donald have within him an interesting long form interview? I don't know if he does. I think he's just got, you know, very entertaining short takes. But uh, I like your question about if you could go witness one day in history. There is this incredible account of what the markets of. Um, Tenochtitlan, I can't pronounce it, mm-hmm. but the place that Mexico City is uh, was mm-hmm. when the um, when the old fellows were there before the Spanish came. The there is an account Mex- that a uh, it's the Aztecs. Aztecs. Yeah, I think it's the Aztecs. Um, the Incas were the southern. Mm-hmm. So the minor Aztec. I think it's Aztec and the mine was Central America. Anyway, um, this, there's, a, there's a recording. You can find it on YouTube, a great channel called uh, Voices of the Past. They take these mm. uh, historical texts and then put an animated video and a voice narration over it. And there's one of a Spanish sailor um, giving his account of the markets. Um, and it's just incredible. You know, At the time, it was the most popular city in the world. You know, mm-hmm. And they just came in and it had functioning markets and it had uh, it had imported goods you know very very fascinating um mm. so i don't know to see something like that or to see ancient egypt in its prime or rome in its oh, prime yeah. i think i'd want to go way far back and like see just stroll yeah. around for a day um, archimedes yeah. athens 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine, imagine mm. seeing the what is it, the Acropolis in its prime, yeah, and just yeah. sort of sprawling, organized streets leading up to it, just being incredible, absolutely incredible. Mm. But uh, Nikki, um, thank you for thank you for that. I uh, we we've definitely this is two separate podcasts in one um and thank you for making it so 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 discussional uh i really mm, i really yeah, enjoyed having doing me that. on and like i said i haven't done yeah, it on, great, on it before yeah so um, and yeah let's check um, in down the line when the when the show is more out absolutely and people know where to find it it's the very top link in the podcast description and they should say that ryan sent me uh so i can so Nikki knows how many people actually came from listening from this podcast. I think that would be uh, very cool. Uh, and yeah, yeah I listened great. to episode one today and I'm hooked already. I think it's incredible. It's so well produced. The story's fascinating. Your narration is great. And it's got the Project Brazen name attached to it. So you know it's going to be really, really good. Thank you so much for having me. This is great fun. <laughs>